We're going to be in Mark 10, as she read for us, verses 32 through 45 this morning. As you turn there, I want to uh, speak personally to this, uh, this gathering, just as I did in the first gathering, and that is to say that um, um, how I've been at Grace now for five years. I uh, came here in March of 2010, and uh, yes, March of 2010, and um, I think I'll look back on my time here as the most formative years of my life. There's been so many milestones that I've crossed while being here, and um, so much that this congregation has, has seen my family through, and I am so significantly grateful to each and every one of you for your love, your friendship, um, for your patience, for your teaching. And while I'm not saying goodbye by any means this morning, I'm still working here 20 hours a week. Um, I won't get to see you as often. And um, this is definitely a new calling in my life and in the lives of those who are, who are going with us. And things will be different. And... I just want to say to you how you voted last week to do this, and I appreciate your vote of confidence so sincerely. I'm humbled to have this opportunity, grateful for it, thrilled to be doing it, so excited, anticipating God's work uh, in East Marion, but I will miss you very much. So from my heart, I love you. And I thank you. And so, <clears throat> I'm a little bit more emotional this morning than typically. Um, so I'm going to try to shift gears. And uh, we're going to dive into our sermon this morning. And so, <sighs> all right. We ready? Okay. I'm ready. That, that, was, that was shifting gears right there. Um, I wonder this morning what you regard as or who you regard as the greatest individuals to have ever walked this planet. Uh, when you look back and you see people, who do you admire? Uh, what is your standard, your measure for greatness? Uh, when you look back at world history, do you think of Albert Einstein or Isaac Newton, do you think of scientists? Do you think of authors? Do you think of great Christian leaders? Or do you think of political leaders like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? Do you look at uh, the uh, modern world and see athletes, LeBron James or Dale Earnhardt, and think that's my vision of greatness, you know? Um, do you look at music? Do you think of Johnny Cash, or you think of, I know Adrian Early would say Eddie Van Halen. Um, <laughs> um, what do you see as greatness? Um, as I've thought about this this week, I have sincerely recognized that as this passage lays out greatness for us, that in my life, my mom, Ravonda Walker, is great. Because Jesus teaches us in this passage that true greatness 
is not how the world measures this. The world really looks at abilities and following and power and authority and influence and says that is the picture of greatness. That's what makes an individual great when they are able to do these things. But God looks at greatness in a different way. God looks at greatness. He doesn't look at the externals. He looks at the internals. And he looks at someone and sees, does this person, is this the type of person who serves others, counts others more important than themselves, humbles themselves to the point of serving each other. Jesus is our picture of that. And I think moms, it being Mother's Day, are sincerely a picture of this type of service. They're often the unsung heroes of our world. Often those who make the history books are not the moms that have actually helped shape the lives of the people who are in the history books. Five years ago, I wrote a poem to my mom uh, that I think hits on these very things for all of you and your moms, whoever those they may be. Um, and this is what it says. It has long been said that the hand that rocks the cradle rocks the world. Like a stone dropped into the water crashing waves upon distant shore, so a mother's gentle touch upon a baby's face can create the greatest tyrant or a man of greatest grace. She stands behind a life, invisible most to see, but fingerprints through long years of labor upon the soul will be. It's because of you, my mother, my solid rock and tree, it's because of your patient labors that few do rarely see. It's because you have been so good to place me on your knee and softly and so quietly speak a solemn decree. I give him unto you, Father. May his life unto you be. If you will but save his soul, that shall be thy gift to me. This is what moms, good moms, great moms do. They give their life in self-sacrifice to a child. And they see that child grow into a hopefully God-willing, godly man, godly woman. And today we honor our moms for this very reason. And Jesus looks at this type of service, many of our moms are, and hopefully the way we are aspiring to be ourselves, and says that is true greatness. But the fact of the matter is that most of us, all of us, have a hard time looking at this type of behavior and saying that is the way, that is, that is great. That's everything. That's everything that I aspire to be is a servant. I want people to see me in this way. Usually the way we perceive it, we, we are human as we are, we default to the world's measure of greatness. And we look at those with power, authority, influence, intelligence, abilities, and think of those things as the definition of greatness. And the same thing was true in Jesus' day. So we come to our passage here. We're, I'm reminded of the fact that Jesus in his life was not typically praised for his service. Because people around him did not, as earthly as we are, observe those things as the picture of greatness. Nobody was going around saying, hey, you got to meet this, this guy. He's washing people's feet, you know. They were going around and they were saying, there's this guy who can feed 20,000 people with loaves of bread and some little fish. He's done it twice. Here's this guy who can walk on water. I heard some people talking about this. He can heal lame people and the blind. There's demons getting cast out by this guy. And I heard about when he went and he talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
and he shut their arrogant mouths. This guy is something to behold. He is great. He is amazing. And when we look at our passage, we see the effect of this perception of greatness. As true and as good as these things are, we see the focus of this upon the disciples that are following him. Verse 32 says this, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. I think that is a very interesting sentence. Get the picture. There's a group of people following Jesus. A huge multitude of people who are simply following him. And then the 12 of Jesus' closest disciples. And then about 25, 30 feet in front of them is Jesus. He's walking by himself. And Mark looks at this and says that the disciples and the multitudes that were following him in this event were amazed and afraid. Is that not odd? Like, why would they be thinking this in this particular He's just walking down the road. I mean, what's going on here? When we perceive greatness and we're in the presence of that which we admire, we often respond this sort of a way. I'm reminded of the story of George Washington. George Washington, no doubt, was a tremendous individual. And after the American Revolution... Uh, George Washington was the presiding president over the first constitutional convention in 1787. And the founding fathers that we all envision as these giants, the Mount Rushmore, you know, of our presidents, were all terrified of George Washington. So much so that they were unwilling to go up to him casually to sort of start up a conversation with him. They were just too afraid. He's too great. A story is told of Alexander Hamilton having a group of delegates around him, and they were talking about how they were reluctant to approach General Washington. And Alexander Hamilton finds this green newbie, apparently, Governor Morris, and he says, I dare you, true story, I dare you to go up to General Washington and just kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, you know, something nice to him, like, I'm ha you're having a good, hope you're having a good day or something. So Gen uh, Governor Morris goes up to George Washington claps him on the shoulder and says, Dear Mr. Washington, it's so good to see you doing well today. And the story goes that George Washington just looks over at him, takes his hand, moves it off of his shoulder, and doesn't say a word, just glares at him. And Governor Morris just kind of tucks back, <laughs> goes back to his friends, and it said, it said, I will never approach General Washington the same way again. He's just too great. Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever met one of your heroes? Perhaps it's a, uh, uh, somebody you've really looked up to, and when you approach them, you are, you are legitimately shaken. That's the way people were seeing Jesus, even as long as they had walked with him, amazed and even frightened by being in his presence. But as Jesus walked ahead of them, greatness and authority and power was the furthest thing from his mind. Because as we read here, Jesus goes on to pull, off, to pull off the side of the road his 12 disciples because Jesus has something much deeper going on in his mind. Jesus is in turmoil. He's really anxious because this is, you understand, the very last trip that Jesus is going to make to Jerusalem. And what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem is a gruesome and brutal murder. He knows this. His disciples do not. And being servant as Jesus is. He's still concerned about his disciples. 
pulls his closest friends to the side of the road and talks to them. And this is what he says, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. See, this is now the third time that Jesus has said this very paragraph to his disciples. I want to look at the other two times right quick. Going back to chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. This is the first time Jesus foretold this, saying this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. How would you like Jesus to say that to you? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter had a different image of greatness. Chapter 9, verse 30 is the next time. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. There's two things I find interesting about these three paragraphs. There's two things in common. The first thing is that each time Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. That's the title he gives himself. The second thing is that each time the disciples misunderstand or simply don't understand. They just can't grasp. And we read this and we see that Jesus says this plainly and we were like, what? how thick can you get? Why, Why aren't you grabbing this? Like, can he say this any more plainly? So what's going on? Why can't these disciples understand what Jesus is saying? And it's all tied up in their perception of his greatness. You see, they look at Jesus as this coming and conquering king, and the furthest thing from their mind is that a conquering king would be conquered by those he came to rule. That just doesn't make sense, and they have biblical justification for thinking this way. The Son of Man, this title that Jesus uses, is rooted in Daniel chapter 7, which I'll read for us right quick. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the son of man, that is to Jesus Christ, Daniel foresaw this. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So if this is your perception of Jesus, and he sits down with you and he says, hey, I'm going to get killed, you just don't have a category for that. That just doesn't make sense. Surely not. No. No, this is just one of those other sayings that Jesus has that we don't get, and we'll just figure it out later on, but it can't mean what he's saying. That's kind of their attitude about it. 
And quite clearly, James and John operate off of that assumption because they are really entranced by this whole notion of this glorious conquering king, somewhat seduced by the greatness that they might be able to inherit from it when they ask this, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, by the way, Matthew adds that they coerced their mom to actually ask this question for them. So not even manly enough to do it themselves, they get their mama to come and ask him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. It's a bold way to come to him. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Essentially what James and John are asking Jesus is they're saying, Jesus, whenever you're ruling the entire planet, would it be okay if one of us was his second in charge and the other one was third in charge? Kind of humble expectations for themselves. Not too much, just second and third in control of the entire planet. That's what James and John have in mind. You see, what they do not understand is that Jesus' pathway to greatness, to glory, to kingdom rule is not by conquering and dominating and, uh, and, and, and lording it over people. But instead, the true measure of greatness is in our service of others. And Jesus will display his greatness most keenly, most crystal clearly, in the service to mankind he is about to render in Jerusalem, in his crucifixion, in his death on our behalf. Disciples don't understand this at all. They are hung up on their own ambition and their own quest for glory. And we look at this, and we can have the tendency to look at this and think, what a bunch of bozos, right? What a bunch of stuck-on-themselves, immature disciples. And that's kind of the way I thought about it until I began to think a little bit more personally. And uh, so, I'll let you in on a little bit of type of guy I am, dark, sinful heart. In case those of you at East Marion didn't know that you're getting a sinner for a preacher, you're about to figure that out. So, um, about a year ago, I was listening to the documentary of uh, Thomas, not documentary, the biography of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, as I was listening to this, uh, I, I heard this author continuing to quote Thomas Jefferson's letters to friends and friends' letters to him and, uh, and, and also his journal entries and these sorts of handwritten documents that were there. And I began to think, you know, all my stuff's in emails and text messages and phone calls. And shoot, if I turn into some famous guy someday, there's not going to be anything for somebody to write about if, they don't, if I don't do something about this. And so I honestly started keeping a journal. I mean, I honestly did this, okay? Now, in my defense, I'm not some stuck-on-myself, cocky, narcissistic preacher. Um, I, I don't think. I mean, I hope not. Um, I might not know that about myself if that's the way I was. But uh, I didn't think this, like, consciously. I wasn't like, hey, man, when somebody writes a biography about me, I need to have... No, it was all kind of on the back burner of my brain. And... It influenced the way I acted because I was, in those moments, really stuck on my ability to stake my claim on this earth, to make my presence known. 
to be the type of person that for centuries down the road, people will look back and say, you know, remember that Andrew guy, man, he had some things going on for him. You see, that's what's in my heart. I want myself to rise to the throne. And I'm actually worse than James and John because James and John said second and third, but I say first. More often than not. Because I want to sit on Jesus' throne. You see, we have this ourselves, and you're not off the hook either. We are all the same here. How many of you operate often off of the desire to have your name on the sign on the parking place that says Teacher of the Year? Not because you want to be the, be, do a good job, but because you want your coworkers to say, hey, there goes, that, there goes that, that person who's Teacher of the Year, you know, and like admire you. How many of you want to be praised and admired in your job for your own glory's sake, not because you simply want to be a good worker? How many of you want to amass all of the wealth that you can for yourselves or uh, get the finest vehicles or kill the biggest buck or whatever it is so that you can brag about this? It's the very same thing that's going on here. It is our own quest for external greatness as the world measures it. But Jesus looks and says there's a better measure. There's God's measure. And God's measure is not our external ability to be great, but our internal ability to serve one another. So Jesus is going to set himself up as the prime example of the truly great individual, the servant of the world. So he looks at James and John he says to them, so you want to rule the world. Okay, fine. If you're going to do that, then you're going to need to be able to do this. Are you able to drink of the cup that I'm about to drink? To be baptized with the baptism with which I am about to be baptized? You see, Jesus was referring to his coming suffering in Jerusalem. And James and John once again, a little thick. They look at each other. Yeah, 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 I think, yeah, sure, yeah, huh? Yeah, I think so. So we'll be fine with that. And they don't have an idea what he's talking about. And Jesus looks at them, and he doesn't rebuke them. Jesus realizes that his little attempt at a lesson here has kind of fallen short right there. And he looks down the portals of time at James and John, and he says, yeah. You will. See, James would be the first apostle to be martyred. He'd be stabbed and thrown off of a cliff. John, about, about 60 or 70 years later, legend says was boiled, survives, and is exiled to the island of Patmos. Yeah, they would drink of Jesus' cup but not before they had learned the lesson of true greatness. They would reach the pinnacle of that service at the ends of their lives, but they needed to be taught specifically from Jesus what that looks like. And so Jesus describes it to them. He says, verse 42, And Jesus called all of the disciples to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. If you follow Jesus, you desire to be great, truly great. Not great as the world perceives greatness, but great as God perceives greatness. Then you must be the type of person who is willing to forsake your rights a slave. A slave has no rights. The type of person who's willing to look down the row and say, I'm going to treat that person better than I treat myself. You see, that, when God looks at an individual, when God looks at an individual and says, ruler of a country, richest man in history, greatest athlete, God could care less. But when he looks at the unsung heroes, the mothers perhaps, or whoever else, who in humility and self-sacrifice have given themselves to serve one another, God applauds in heaven and says, that man or that woman is great. And the reason they are great is because it is when we serve one another in this way, that we most imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's very, very interesting. Remember what Daniel chapter 7 said about the Son of Man. Jesus recalls that same language. The Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel prophesied that the Son of Man would be served by the nations. The nations would bow down to him. The Romans, the Jews, the Americans would serve the King, Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes this image of the Son of Man that the disciples have hung on to, and he flips it around and he says, No, the Son of Man the ruler of the universe, the creator of the universe, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, did not come to be served. He came to be your slave and to allow you to execute him, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus could have come as this dominant power authority, just wielding his power and forcing us into submission. No problem there at all. If he needed any help, he had myriads of angels to do it with him, but he didn't need that anyway. Instead, Jesus came, not asserting his authority, not asserting his dominance, not asserting his power, but instead humbling himself to death on a cross. And in that act in his crucifixion on the cross, not in his creation, not in his ability to come and have power, not in his second coming, is his greatest act achieved. It is in, it's not in those things. It is in, specifically, his willingness to be this type of a king who serves his followers, who is willing to give his life for them. How amazing is this God? Why would he do this? 
And the answer is because he loves you. And if you do not know him, he desires you to come into this and to love him, to receive the gift of his service unto you at the cross when he paid for your sins. But for all of us, he challenges us in this service to imitate him in all of our affairs in this life. Paul, picking up on this very theme in Philippians chapter 2, says this. He says, Consider one another as more important than yourselves. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant in the likeness of a man and humbling himself to, in obedience to death on a cross. That is your standard of greatness. Is the lowliness of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, how great are you when it comes to your relationship with your spouse? Do you literally consider that individual as more important than yourself? Employer, do you consider those who work for you? If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you're called to do. Do you consider them as more important than yourselves? Employee, do you do this for your boss? Do you do this for your coworker? Do you do this for the person in your life who, when you see coming, you walk the other direction, and we all have those people. You see, God is calling us to this type of service. There are great opportunities, and Jerry will share with you some of those, that you can begin to do this in very practical ways, both here at this church or at East Marion, by giving of your own time to serve others around you, so that in so doing, you might discover a little bit more deeply what it's like to be Christ-like. And that's what happens when we imitate him in this way. We experience that type of, of, uh, of renewed and deepened intimacy with our Lord. So how great are you, brother and sister? Are you a servant unto others? Let's pray.